If you enjoy the channel and our video content and would like to support us, you can do this in a couple of ways. You can sign up to our Patreon site which is a monthly subscription to one of our four tiers, each giving you something different from early access interviews up to exclusive unseen footage. There's also the option of a one-off donation via PayPal which allows you the option to donate an amount of your choice. Both options really help to keep this channel going and to continue putting out regular content for you good folk. So please take a look at aircurrentreview.tv forward slash donate and I thank you in advance. Thank you and enjoy. So Wombat, when did you first become interested in aviation? Uh, that's actually a question I get a lot and it's not the typical answer that a lot of people have is, you know, they grew up around aviation or their father or mother or somebody was in aviation. Um, it, it really kind of was happenstances of just, a. I was at college and in a, in a Navy ROTC program, I had no idea that the Navy really flew airplanes at the time. And okay. which sounds funny now looking back <laughs> and one of the seniors, in the program came up to me and he asked me, you know, hey, what do you want to do in the Navy? And I had never really given it any thought. I just wanted to join. Um, and he's like, well, what about flying? And I'm like, the Navy has airplanes? He's like, yeah, man, they have tons of them. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, let's do that. And that was it. Like, I had never flown a plane until flight training. I, I really didn't, like I said, I didn't grow up around it. You know, my family, when we went on vacation, we would do air travel, but it wasn't something that was a, a huge thing. So, I don't have that, that wonderful, like, this is when aviation bit me. It just kind of was there. And I said, yeah, let's give it a shot. And, and it worked out. So uh, not a glamorous story at all, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very strange. Some people, like, they have it seeded into them to, like, you know, like two, three years old. But other people just come to it later in life. So it's like, you know, we get these stories, which is great. But I want to ask yeah. you, so why did you actually join the Navy rather than the U.S. Air Force? So I had, and this is even funnier that I didn't know that the Navy had airplanes in high school. I was part of a, a junior ROTC program. So, and it was a Navy program. So you'd think that I would have paid attention a little bit <laughs> as to what the Navy has. So when it was time to go to college, I did a year of college uh, and didn't do so hot and then transferred to the school that I graduated from. And uh, when I did that, they had all of the programs, but I went to the Navy because that was what I had done in high school. Um, and then as I got into it and learned more and more about it, the idea of landing on an aircraft carrier kind of stuck. And right. it would have been probably smarter and more enjoyable to have been in the Air Force and land on long runways and have cold beer and nice golf courses and things <laughs> like that. Um, but the whole just allure of landing on a ship there was something about it. I, I don't know if it was the challenge or just the eliteness um, that that stuck to me. So that's why I stuck with the Navy and I figure, you know, if I have the opportunity to land on ships, that's what I want to do. So. Absolutely. So, like, did you have a type you wanted to go on to? Obviously, at your point of joining the Navy, did you have like a, a type? Yeah, you're like, that's the one I want to go for. Yeah. So, you know, at the time in college, the F-14 was still around. Um, even in flight school at the very beginning, the F-14 was still around. The last F-14 class was a few weeks before I started selection into that. Um, so obviously growing up with Top Gun and things like that, 
the F-14 fighters, um, but the Hornet was coming into its own as well. So yes. there was something about the Hornet. It could have been the single seat, you know, you're, you're, you're all on your own, the multi-role. Um, but, but fighters were really where I wanted to be. But if I couldn't do that, I still wanted to land on a ship. You know, so I really didn't give a whole lot of thought to the P3 or helicopters or things like that. Not to say there's anything wrong with those communities. It's just if I was going to go fly helicopters, I think it would have been more fun in the Air Force because they had different missions. If I was going to go fly a big winged aircraft, well, the Air Force obviously has some amazing big wing aircraft that do some really, really cool missions. So for the Navy, it was really anything that was carrier uh, related is what I wanted to be a part of. So. So, so how do you ultimately like, it was the fighters first is what yes. we, my goal was fighters first and then see what happens. Yeah. So how did you feel when you got selected to fly the, the mighty E2? <laughs> well, it's interesting how it went down. So, so I actually did air force flight training for the first part. So I wasn't with the Navy. Um, and that was actually probably better for me because I needed the structure. The air force training is very structured and the Navy training is very not. Um, okay. So I went through this whole thing and, and you, you get dream sheet, you know, Hey, what do you want to do? What do you want to fly? And I was like, well, I want to go to Kingsville, Texas and fly, fly jets, or I want to go to Meridian, Mississippi and fly jets. And then I put E2 C2 cause they were a combined platform. Um, and then I think I put helicopters and P3s can't remember. And the commander that was in charge of all us came up to me one day in the hallway and he was a former F 14 Rio to pilot. He had done that in his career. Um, and he asked me, said, Hey, why, why'd you put E2s over helicopters and P3s? And I told him kind of what I just said to you, it's, it's all about landing on the ship if you're in the Navy. Um, so he went off and selection night came and in typical U S Navy fashion, they don't manage it well. So one week <laughs> everybody gets fighters and the next week everybody's flying helicopters right. and it just becomes this reactionary. Whereas the air force was really good. You know, they had the slots planned out for the year. So there was no jet slots, um, but he got me an E2 C2 slot because he knew I wanted to land on the ship. And um, and at that point, you know, and I, I tell tell young guys and girls like I did want to fly fighters, but I really wanted to get my wings because I had some struggles, not necessarily academically in flight school, but with air sicknesses and stuff. So my goal was I just want to get my wings on whatever it is. The fact that I can be a fixed wing carrier based pilot was was cherry on top. Um, and I was real happy with that. So I was not down at all. I was excited. Um, I didn't know a damn thing about the E2 at all. <laughs> no idea what it did. Barely even knew what it looked like. So, um, but here I am. There you go. So, yeah, let's talk a bit about the E2 because that's what I want to talk about and get uh, divulge into. But uh, what was the initial role of the Hawkeye? And was it the same when it was like originally designed from when you flew on your time? So, no, um, although we did the mission once. So the original mission of the E-2 for the Navy was to intercept, to track and intercept Russian bears coming after the carrier strike group. Mm. That was it. That was its pure right. mission. Um, and and actually, ironically, uh, I got launched on an alert once in, I think it was 2007, and we found two Russian bears that were trying to come over fly the carrier. So, so it still did its job, right? I mean, obviously they weren't doing anything hostile. They were just trying yeah. to take pictures over the carrier and do all that games that we played. Um, but that was the role. That was the whole purpose of it. That plane was a hundred percent designed for the guys and girls in the back period. I mean, we had so little automation and avionics and just, 
really didn't have anything to help us build situational awareness in the front. It was very minimal and it was all in the back. Um, since then, and, and even in my time, because as I was in the E2, we switched from the four blade to the eight blade and, and you know, we went, the Hawkeye 2000 came and, and, and all this, it really started becoming that, that integral part of the carrier strike group that, you know, the Admiral's like, hey, when can I get an E2 airborne? I need the connectivity to everything oh, wow. to people. And I, and I know you understand it, but to people that don't understand the aviation, I, I kind of joke that it's like, it's like your wireless modem in your house. Like if you unplug it, everything stops working. And that's really yeah. the, the role of what the E2 has morphed into um, between the radar, between avionics, between the communications. I mean, it really links everybody together um, as that conduit to be able to have the whole battle space. And not just our forces, I mean, international forces, all this, allies, everything, the Air Force, everything all works together. Um, and that's kind of its, that's its point of connection is, is the Hawkeye. So it's a pretty cool plane to fly. And I ha my hat is off to the guys and girls that work in the back because I, there's no way I could do that job. <laughs> no chance. So uh, I give them a lot of credit for the hard work they do back there with the, with the systems they have. So, like, I want to ask, like, what were your first thoughts when you saw the E-2 up close? Because I'm, I'm grown to love this aircraft more and more. Obviously, famously, it's been in Top Gun 2. So, what were your first sure. thoughts when you saw it up close? <laughs> Do you want the honest answer? Go on, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to get too vulgar, but when I first looked at it on the flight line, my first thought was, my God, there's no way that thing could fit on an aircraft carrier. <laughs> Followed immediately by, it kind of looks like a a penis with a hat on like it's a very funny looking plane like there's nothing about it and now you'll never not be able to see that by the way oh so i'm gonna say that now yeah cheers but, for that a hundred percent it but it's a weird looking plane and it wasn't until i got into the training and i really understood why things were the way they were that it that it made sense but i mean from an aircraft standpoint it doesn't i mean you have Two big engines, a huge wingspan, four tails, but only three of them are a rudder. I mean, it's just bizarre <laughs> the way they put this thing together. Um, but it all makes sense once you understand the history behind it and, and why it is the way it is. So, um, but I would say first thought definitely was, holy hell, that thing is huge. I, I don't, and that was, they were all parked on the flight line and the wings were all folded. So I could only imagine with the wing spread how big it was. And it's not a small plane when you're trying to put it down on a small aircraft carrier. So absolutely it was, it was yeah, a big old lady but uh, can, you, oh, can you talk us through some of your ground training in the e2 sure so uh initially start up you know i've gotten my wings i've carrier called in the t45 so i've proven that i could at least do it 10 times without killing myself <laughs> and off to the e2 um you go in on day one and uh you they put you in a room i'll never forget it there was 10 of us 10 students uh pilots and Instructors came in and they explained how the E2 and the C2, because they're, they're very similar in their avionics and things like that, um, that you would never see a civilian variant. And right. I was like, you know, from, a, from an E2 standpoint, I'm like, well, obviously, why would there be a civilian E2? Like, there's no need for that. Mm -hmm. But what they got at is the reason there wouldn't be is because our FAA, which is now it's changed since, but our FAA had deemed the instrument scan so bad that it was unflyable, the way they had the original steam gauges all right. outlined, and that it was aerodynamically unstable, <laughs> the airframe was. And I was like, okay, maybe I, picked the, <laughs> maybe I should have went helicopters. I don't know. Um, but then they basically said, okay, there's 10 of you. Two of you are going to go fly the C2. 
Eight of you are going to go fly the E2. We've never had a class not figure it out amongst themselves. So figure it out. You have all day. See ya. And they all walked out. And it was just the 10 of us in there. And we wow. had to figure out who was going to do what. Um, so that was day one. Um, and it, it got interesting in that room, for sure. Because there were some people that did not want to fly the E2. They were offering money for a C2 slot. Um, I kind of took myself out of it very quickly because I wanted to fly the E2. Because secretly in the back of my head, I always still wanted to try to fly fighters. And I figure if I flew the E2, I'd be day qualified, night qualified behind the ship. I'd be around the air wing, kind of a poor man's uh, networking opportunity. Um, whereas the COD guys are kind of off on their own doing their thing. Um, so I picked right off the bat. I was like, I'll take an E2 slot and I was done. So, um, but then it was simulator training in a very rudimentary simulator. Frankly, um, they rarely even turned the motion on. Um, because the motion was hydraulically operated and it kind of lagged the computers. So most of our simulator training was, was procedural by nature. And then you were right into, into flying that plane, which is grossly different than coming from a little T-45, which was a blast of a little jet to fly to now into this huge plane that uh, has massive amounts of P factor and all this stuff that you don't even really know what that is at that point. Um, so to say it was a fire hose of training is is putting it lightly. It was a lot of it was a lot of work. Absolutely, but. and yeah, you mentioned the crews before, but can you can you tell our viewers how many crew uh, crews were on board, and yeah, basically what the roles of each guy girl was on there on board? Sure. So you have a pilot, co-pilot, um, and they're they're pretty much interchangeable. Um, you know, one sits in the left, one sits in the right. Now in the Navy, we fly the person physically flying the plane for takeoff and landing is the left seat pilot. Um, because of where the lens is on the ship and things like that. Not to say you couldn't land it from the right seat. Um, it would be difficult at the ship because your scan would be horrible. Um, but that was basically what you did. It didn't, the seat up front didn't really delineate who was more senior or who wasn't. There was times, you know, when I became an aircraft commander, I'd be in the left seat. Sometimes I'd be in the right seat. It just depended on the flight and who needed the landings and all that. And then in the back, you have three naval flight officers. Um, we called them the RO, the ACO, and the the SECO. And the, the RO is the person who sat the furthest forward. Um, RO is radar operator. And basically their job was to get the radar systems up and online. I mean, they all kind of worked interchangeably, but mm -hmm. typically the RO is the most junior back person in the back um, just working the systems. Because that was a full-time job just to keep those radars working and, and all the other systems. Uh, the ACO, the, the air control officer, was the furthest back, uh, which I always said was was the worst seat to sit in because you're at the tail of the whip back there. Um, and they were the primary air-to-air -air controller, typically. Again, anybody could have done it because they each had a scope. Um, and then the SECO was the mission commander in the middle and would usually work kind of everything. So from a seniority standpoint, for the most part, it was most junior was the forward, most uh, senior was the middle and then the middle was the was the app person working that so uh, small tube three scopes um, just like you see in the Top Gun movie and uh, that was 100% accurate I, I literally that scene although it was brief gave me chills because of how <laughs> accurate the calls were everything I mean it was it was done really well and it was it was cool to see to see some homage paid to an aircraft that most people don't know about so it was kind of interesting. And we're going to have to ask this one, Wombat, before we move on. Was there an oven in there? No oven. Although some of the 
which is totally unhealthy, but some of the boxes were so hot you could warm things on them because they would just <laughs> run at such a high, hot temperature. Right. Um, and then even like things like the windshield heat and stuff, you could put stuff in there. Uh, sometimes when we were lucky on the ship, we would get like cans of soda and you would bring one and if you put it on the window, you could chill it. I mean, there were things you could do. You, you learn every trick, but there was, the plane was not, and nor is it still really designed with air crew comfort in mind. Um, the E2D is when they're now doing in-flight refueling. So they didn't, they didn't have a thought of, you know, you basically had six and a half hours of gas and that was it. So, you know, in the Navy's fashion, they're like, they could do anything for six and a half hours. So the seats were very uncomfortable. Um, they, the, the cockpit itself was not comfortable for the most part. I mean, I'm not a small person, but it wasn't very comfortable. And then, you know, there was no amenities. Uh, there were relief tubes underneath the pilot seats and one common relief tube in the far back of the airplane for, for the back, uh, NFOs. So it was, it was very much a war fighting, if you want to call it that machine. And, and the Navy didn't, didn't care. I joked that if the Air Force had made an E2, it probably would have had an oven and like a cot, um, you know, a cappuccino machine. There would have been a lot nicer things in there, but no, not for the Navy at all. Brilliant. But let's talk about your flying training. And obviously, we have to talk about your first carrier landing and takeoff on the E2. So, um, yeah, so you go initially in the T-45. Uh, that's a blur. It's daytime only. And then you're off into the E2. Um, pretty standard syllabus of training. You start out, you know, in, in familiarization flights, just flying real easy. Then you do some instrument flying, um, which again, horrible instrument scan in that plane at the time. Now they've updated it. There are more glass cockpits. It's a lot nicer. Um, but at the time it was brutal. And then you work. The biggest thing is pattern work and single engine work. And I still vividly remember in the training, going through the single engine training, because one of the things a lot of people don't realize is, is they're not counter rotating props. They rotate mm -hmm. the same direction. Um, and the just, and they're extremely overpowered engines for what they need. Um, in fact, it's it, the last time I checked, it still had like propeller plane climb records below 10,000 feet. Wow. I mean, it, it just had so much power. Wow. Um, the problem with that is that obviously if you lose a motor, one, you have a critical engine. So left motor is your critical engine. And so, so we would train to that. But if you lost it, I mean, it was full rudder. Uh, and I mean, it took everything you got. And you would trim to the stop and still have to hold rudder in. Like you couldn't trim out a critical engine completely. So, you know, I remember vividly we're in the pattern uh, in, in Virginia. And they're like, okay, today's the day. We're going to simulate engine failures, you know. So they would pull it back basically to idle or almost idle. And the instructor's sitting there. He's like, okay, so I'm going to pull back this engine. What like he's talking me through this in the pattern, like what rudder are you going to push in all this stuff? And, and, you know, you have it all in your head. And as soon as he does it, you realize the whole plane just swerves and you're looking out the side <laughs> window. And he's like, how about that rudder? I was like, oh, yeah. I mean, it was just it was it was so massively weird to fly. Yeah. Um, you know, that it just took so much effort. Um, and they said and, and at the time and I didn't believe him, but I looking back, I do. They said it takes about 500 hours of flying that plane before you really get comfortable in it. Right. Um, and you feel kind of like you strap on the aircraft. Yeah. You know, vice a Hornet, which took like five hours. So it was, you know, you hop in the thing. Once you know how to start it, it's like your coolest sports car ever. Uh, and it's not a problem. So 
they, they the majority we did a little bit of formation flying just for the skill set mm -hmm. but the majority was pattern work the landings because they knew ultimately at the end of the training you had to go land on the ship day and night and that was kind of the the ultimate equalizer so um yeah i i still the first cat shot didn't do a lot for me honestly like it was it, it, i mean the t45 you know was was fun too and but that first landing <laughs> i I still remember it, and and it, if it wasn't for the instructor sitting next to me, there's no way I would have done it. Frankly, I, I remember vividly the whole time coming down that last mile, and you're just looking at this landing area that's not getting any bigger at all, and you want it to, and it's just it's not, you know. And and we had done weeks, if not months, at the field, landing on this little carrier box that they paint on the runway. But it's painted on a bigger runway, so it naturally <laughs> looks bigger. And yeah. um, I, I remember after a few touch and goes and finally some traps that that the instructor's like, you got to stop putting power on. And I'm like, I looked at him like, what do you mean? And he goes, the whole time you're coming down, you're just slowly moving your power levers forward. Like I was trying to get away from the ship subconsciously. So it took a lot of work. Um, and then nighttime, <laughs> it's... It, the it was the best conditions for training that you could ever imagine calm sea state everything and it was still just i could not believe you were just flying at lights i mean that's it and you just have to believe that there's going to be a steel deck when you hit down and it it's definitely it was very eye-opening looking back it was some of the easiest flying i did i just didn't realize it at the time because yeah uh I immediately went out into the fleet, and if you've ever looked up, or you will after this, there's a uh, American show, a PBS special they did on called Carrier. They did way yeah. back, and there's a an infamous pitching deck episode um, that was filmed right when I met my E2 squadron. On oh that wow, show. really? That was my introduction to real Navy flying, and I would have taken the the traps that I had done a few weeks prior any day over that. Cause that was unbelievable. So it was very much a fire hose in that regard. Um, it's rewarding, but it's, it's pretty scary. So, yeah, because obviously like we'll talk about the Hornet uh, later on, but like obviously sure. single seat, you've only got you to think about, but like in the E2, you've got guys and gals in the back to think about. So that must be a bit of pressure there. It, it is. And, and one of the things somebody asked me once what I found the most rewarding about E2 flying and it was that I never had a crew that wouldn't want to fly with me in any condition. Oh, and and we had some, we had, we had at least one pilot in our squadron that people refused to fly with. I wow, mean, really? and, and frankly, yeah. And, and I don't necessarily blame them to be honest with you. He just did some things that weren't ideal. And, um, but I took a lot of pride in that, you know, at the time I did not have kids. I, I, um, I knew my friends, you know, their, their fathers and, and mothers and stuff like that. And it's like, I want to bring them back every time, no matter how bad it gets. Um, and sure. so there was, it was pressure, but it was also, there was a big reward, um, with that, you know, because no matter what the mission, no matter how bad the visibility or the sea state was or, or aircraft malfunctions, which were, <laughs> there was plenty of those as well. Um, I knew that I could, I could bring it back. So, and I made a bet with myself early on that my last visible 
site before I died was not going to be the dashboard of an E2 Hawkeye. So <laughs> I refused to let that plane kill me. Uh, and I worked my butt off to successfully achieve that goal. So it was, it was a lot, but, yeah, but it was fun. It was <laughs> Here I am. Yeah. And I will never get back in an E2. So I can't lose that bet ever. So, Absolutely. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. So uh, can you talk us through some of the strengths and weaknesses of the Hawkeye? Um, I would say a lot of the weaknesses have been fixed. So our loiter time was a weakness because we couldn't mid-flight refuel. Um, so that's been fixed. The avionics at the time when I flew it was a weakness um, because it really, the, the scan was was horrible. I mean, just, I mean, the worst plane I've ever flown or seen just where they put the instruments. Um, as an example, we had two approach systems at the ship. You had your ACLS and your bullseye. So, and they basically both work like ILSs. I mean, that's essentially what they are. Um, and you, in a perfect world, you would fly the ACLS, which would be up on your attitude indicator right in the front. Um, but if you couldn't get a lock on with that, you'd have to fly bullseye. Well, in the E2, for a guy like me at the time flying bullseye, the needles would not pop up on your primary attitude indicator. Mm. They'd pop up on your standby attitude indicator, which for me was behind my right knee. Not what you so mean. I would be flying <laughs> and I would, I would be flying and I would be checking my vertical speed and all this stuff. And then I'd move my knee and go, okay, I'm still good. And that was your scan <laughs> before you got to the ball. It was horrible. Wow. Um, so now with, you know, the E2D and some of the avionics from what I've heard, um, the glass cockpit, obviously you can do things with that to make it much easier instrument scan wise. So I think those are the two things. The radar has been upgraded, um, which is nice. I think the NFOs like that a lot. Um, so, so the, again, when this thing came online, it was designed for one mission and that was, you know, Hey, we know that Russian bears are coming. Let's launch the Hawkeye and do this. Okay. It's been three or four hours and they need to come back. Let's launch another one. Right. And, um, and the Navy really has adapted that role and, and put a lot of money and, and effort into the Hawkeye to make it. Now I will tell you, I would not want to fly and mid, mid flight refuel on that thing. No way. Uh, as somebody who's done in flight refueling, and flown the Hawkeye, I would never want to be somebody that had to meld those two together. Right. Um, one of my best friends was actually the test pilot for that program when oh, they wow. were doing it. And he told me the stories of that thing. And just the, the visibility of the plane and the P factor, I could only imagine what it's like to to have to do that. You know? So with some of the innovation creates even more issues, but you know, but pilots handle it, so good for them. Absolutely. And just like to let our viewers know, you flew the C model, didn't you? The E2C, yeah. So we started in the the four blade variant, and then about halfway through my tour, we swapped to the eight blade variant, which really wasn't a whole heck of a lot different. It was it was more so because they were running out of four blades, <laughs> so they went to a more advanced system. Um, there was a couple things that were nice, you know, they were electronically prop synced vice not, so you didn't have to sit there with the the throttles and get them to sync up. Um, they said that it couldn't. The system was designed with flyweights that it was impossible for the engine or for the propeller not to feather. Uh, unfortunately, there was a tragedy that proved that wrong. And mm. I lost a friend in that um, mm. where it did not feather. And if it didn't feather, you couldn't hold altitude. And he basically uh, a true hero who I will pay homage to in my second book. But he um, he basically held the plane long enough to let everybody bail out. And then wow. he tried to pitch it and didn't didn't make it. So mm. um so that was obviously a limitation. Uh, the biggest thing we noticed as kind of a deployed um, 
tip of the spear, if you will, squadron was one of the nice things about the four blade when you were landing on the ship is if you got yourself a little high, you could pull the power off and those big blades would go flat and it would just, you'd come right out of the sky. So you could fix a bad landing immediately. Not so much with the eight blade. Uh, to the point where with the eight blade, because they were so much thinner, there was so much less drag, you would almost, if you weren't careful, get into a little ground effect above the flight deck. It was okay. really weird. So it took a whole different approach to landing it. Um, that if you got yourself high, it was, you know, there were ways to get around it. And we kind of all learned, you know, you could pull the power off. You could kick a little rudder to try to drop some lift or wag the wings real quick. But, you know, with how much you had to really be on center line, you didn't have a lot to play with. And uh, it actually made it, in my opinion, a little bit more challenging to land the plane when we went to the eight blade until you got used to it. And then it was a nice plane. So, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, E2C was, was mine. And then the, the D models come out since, since I was out of that squadron yeah so you kind of mentioned it before like the the cockpit uh, can you just uh, describe it for our viewers because like obviously the d is probably more glass but like i'm guessing mm -hmm. everything was analog in the c 100 percent analog um steam gauges uh we had you know you would have your your primary adi and then a kind of an hsi uh in your center stack um, we did have digital engine gauges for whatever that was worth. Uh, really, I mean, if anything could have been analog, those could have been. Um, I already talked about the the standby gyro, which was behind my knee. There was one radio altimeter in the whole cockpit, and it was on the far bottom left side. So um, the co-pilot couldn't even really see it. And we were the only, at the time, now that I think they fixed this in the D model, but we were the only plane that did not have an audible warning on a rat out really? so our only our only wow. warning was a little light would come on if you like wherever you set the bug a light would come on if you were below it well the problem because that was essentially useless right <laughs> is you would set the bug at certain altitudes depending on if you were flying the day pattern or the night pattern but inevitably at night it would come on at the time you don't want it to come on when you're in close <laughs> so what most guys in our flight suits is we had two pen pockets most E2 pilots would have a pen and a grease pen, and they would just grease over the light so you didn't see it. So, uh -huh. I mean, one of the most um, amazing technological safety advances, especially for carrier aviation, and we basically just negated 50 it. 50-cent pen. <laughs> yeah, it was like, I don't need it. It's in my way. Um, I remember vividly once I did a flyby of the Nimitz, uh, approved flyby, nice. and, and, um, and it, it was a very cool... It was one of my better ones, and uh, we broke across the bow, and I had to go visit the skipper of the ship afterwards. Uh, he was cool about it, but they 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 made me sweat it out a little bit. But he asked, he goes, well, how low are you? And I was like, well, sir, the last time I looked at the rat out, it was 200 feet, which was our minimum. You know, Now, I didn't look at it anymore after that, so I'm sure I was much lower. <laughs> um, but based on the fact that I went about eye level with the tower of the ship. so um, But it was... Things like that layout really made it challenging, especially when you were first learning how to fly it, because you're trying to build this scan and your eyes don't even know where to look. Once they mm -hmm. did, it became just like any other plane. You know, mm -hmm. it's just when you when I got to the point where I could get in and essentially strap the plane on, oh, it was so much fun to fly. I mean, you could yeah. make it do things that I mean, you'd go to air shows or just fly into air shows or do flybys on the ship, and nobody expected this big plane to do what you just made it do. So it was really, it was fun, but it took a while to get to that point, so. 
Yeah, and I've I've seen like uh, just going off topic here, one but um, I've seen a couple of videos like uh, flybys of the E2 from the carrier, and it actually has contrails from the wings, and I'm like, wow, uh, that's I've never seen that before. That and it's pretty nimble. It, it is, and and the the story I was talking about is we we would know. I don't want to get any new pilots in trouble if they try this because they listen <laughs> to you, but. We would set up basically for when we would get approved for these flybys, we'd set up at 5,000 feet, 5,000 feet, five miles behind the ship. And basically what you would do is you would just push over and pin the throttles forward and get it as fast as it could go down. And you would level off legally around 200 feet, although it was likely lower. And <laughs> at the time in this flight, it's actually my, my friend uh, is in the right seat. And my plan as I said, when because you can't see. I mean, you, the Hornet, you could see everything. So you can't see. Yeah. So you're just glued on not flying into the water. And I go, when you see the, the tower of the ship go by, say now. And I'm just going to roll it over and pull for everything she'll give me. <laughs> and to his credit, he's also a little bit of a wild card and he's a super fun guy. So in his mind afterwards, he's like, well, if I waited until the tower passed, We'd be too far forward. So I set it a little early and I'm not looking out there. Well, so he says, now I roll this thing over. I pull the yoke back into my lap and then I look out and we went right over the bow of the ship. Like wow. physically, I saw the numbers of the ship go right under my wing and I'm like, okay, even if I was at 200 feet, it's an 80 foot plane side to side. So half of that's 40. The flight deck's 70 foot off the water and there's planes parked on it. So I'm like, <laughs> oh man and uh, i'm like i'm like we were close and like normally when you would do a flyby it was a big deal right the tower would come up and they're like hey great job you're cleared to depart to the west or whatever it was dead silent on the radio and i'm like oh god oh. and i'm like i was like hey man i'm like call him and tell him he's like i'm not talking to him and i was like so finally you know i'm like <laughs> uh, the call sign of ship was old salt i was like old salt 601 depart to the east and they were like, hey, great flyby. I'm like, oh, thank God. So we came around, we land, and there's a big note on the board in our ready room for me to go see the skipper of the ship. And I was like, oh, so I had to go get my ball cap, and I walk up the however many flights of ladder woes and all that. And, uh, and he has a picture back in the days when all you had was printed pictures. And it's just like 11 by 14 taken from the carrier, from the tower, looking down at the E2 as it goes across the bow and you can't see anything of the plane past about halfway between the cockpit and the dome. It's just all completely vapored out. The dome had vapes wow. off of it, the wings. And he looked at me and he's like, so what's the max speed of an E2? And I'm like, well, the book says 300 knots, sir. And he's like, how'd you get all those vapes at 300 knots? And I'm like, it's really, <laughs> really humid outside today. And he just kind of looked at me and he's like, get out of here. Brilliant. Like, so it just, it could do things. It had a lot of power, and, it, and it had, now that's it. Probably wasn't great for the airframe to do that to it, but you know, there's a rental, right? It, well, I didn't buy it, so I wasn't yeah, exactly. Got to have a little bit of fun with it. So it was a very fun plane to fly for sure, though. Absolutely. So, what was a life like uh, for an E2 pilot on the carrier? And did you interact with you know like the Tomcat guys, the Hornet guys, in your time? Sure. So that's a good question. As um, it's weird. Because the NFOs work with the other pilots a lot. Mission planning, debriefs, briefs, all that stuff. If you were just a pilot, you, you wouldn't really interact with them a ton. Um, okay. You know, we didn't, as pilots, we, we didn't have to go to the full mission brief. Uh, we typically didn't go to the debrief. 
Um, but one of the other collateral duties I had was the landing signals officer LSO job. So, and I, I really wanted that job because it did integrate me more. Cause now mm-hmm. you're up there part of an LSO team, uh, you're grading passes of everybody on the ship, you know, from the most junior to most senior pilot. Um, so that's kind of how I got to know a lot of people. Um, and ultimately what I think led to my transition. But for the most part as a pilot, you know, you were, you were either flying, doing your ground job, whatever that was, you know, um, if you were a division officer or writing the schedule or whatever, we rotated all through those jobs. Um, and then, and then you would stand your, your watch standing duty, which if you were not an LSO, your watch standing duty was, was squadron duty officer where you'd sit at the desk and manage the flight schedule. So, uh, partially I wanted to be an LSO because I thought it would be cool. Mm-hmm. The other part was I did not want to be squadron duty officer. So, uh, so that kind of, I would much rather be outside, you know, in the sun with sunglasses on being cool than sitting behind the desk. So, um, but that was pretty much day in and day out what it was, uh, on the ship, you know, until you pulled into port and, and had a good time. And was it like, a, I know it's like probably a silly question to ask, but it was like a nine to five. So it's like, oh, it's five to five. Now I'm going to clock off in five minutes, guys. Or was it just, <laughs> no, I'm guessing not. In the Navy, it is very much not like that. And, right. you know, we would joke and I still joke with my Air Force buddies, you know, they have duty day limits and flight time limits. And there's none of that in the Navy. When you're at sea, it's the Wild West. I mean, yeah. it, in all in all the good things like cool flybys and things you can do there. And all the bad things where, you know, you would work indefinitely. Um, you know, there were times where where you would you would fly six hour flights. So now you're talking, you know, the brief is an hour prior and the debrief. So you're up to eight, nine hours. You would help out with some of the mission planning. Plus, you're in charge of a division of 100 enlisted guys or girls. I mean, so you were just constantly going, um, you know, or at times I was in charge of writing the schedule. So if I wasn't flying, I was putting together the schedule for the next day, you know, plus every four days you're up on the LSO platform, you know, and that's your duty for the day. Um, so it, it never, it never really ended, but it's a, it's a product of the environment you're in because in my opinion, not that I ever made it to any decent rank that I would be in charge of anything major in the Navy, but I don't blame them for how they have the structure. Cause the last thing you need is 5,000 guys and girls on a ship that have free time because that's when they're going to get in trouble because there's of nothing course. to do. I mean, you know, there's no yeah. bowling alley as much as we joke. There's no movie theater, you know, there's no simulators. It's just, it's a warship. And, and Oh, by the way, our warships, there's no at least legal alcohol on. So mm. you want to keep people busy for as much time in the day. You know, it was kind of the, the eat, sleep, fly mentality is, is what it was. And, you know, so you like could never pass. like switch off like when you're just like oh, I'm going to bed now or was your mind always racing you couldn't just switch off like a couple of hours? I think you would but it was only because of exhaustion. Right. Honestly, right. I think you would get to a point where you're just so tired that no matter what you were going to go to sleep, you mm-hmm. know. And then it's it's well how good is the room your your room in, right? So on my first deployment, um actually on all my E2 deployments, I was in a six-man room oh, uh, with between Anywhere, depending, you know, five, four to five people, you know, usually the six man room, we tried to keep one bunk open, you know, to make it a little bit more. Um, But it was I mean, there was always somebody in there. You've got your your bunk. You've got a desk. That's it. Uh, Luckily, in our room on those deployments, I was on um, the O2 level. So there was one level between myself and the flight deck. So it was a little bit quieter. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
there was also a also a massively loud steam pipe right next to my bed, cool. uh, which <laughs> which was good because it was white noise. Once you got used to it, I mean, mm. I could sleep like a baby there. Um, but at first, that took some some getting used to. So you just make do with what you have um, because again, it's it's the time that you're out there and you don't really have much of a choice. So. It's very different than the world I live in now, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Completely, yeah, I understand. Yeah. But uh, have you flown the E2 on any large exercises or even flown in combat with the Hawkeye? Yeah, so all three of my deployments were combat cruises. Um, either Iraq or Afghanistan was primarily what we, we did. Um, and then, yeah, so I've done, I mean, every, every workup cycle we do, we do large force exercises with our air wing. Um, but then additionally, right after I got back from my first deployment, we went to, um, we were one of the first to go to Elmendorf, Alaska at the time. This was in, I think, 2005, where we did a huge exercise, Northern Edge, um, with the Air Force. And it was the first time they brought out the F-22s. Uh. And it was, it was cool. You know, they were very, the hierarchy of fighter pilots in the Air Force is very interesting because... You know, the F-16 guys would roll into town and think they were awesome. And then the F-15 guys would roll in and put them to shame. And then the F-22 guys <laughs> would roll in and put them to, you know, it's just funny. Um, and here we are, the E-2 guys that nobody knows what we do. We're a weird looking AWACS, you know, and, but it was a but it was a fun plane to fly. So that was early on. I got to do that. Um, and then, yeah, all my E-2 time was, uh, was combat deployments. They were what we refer to as a Westpac. So we leave San yeah. Diego. Uh, we're going to go, you know, they, they lure you in with thoughts of Hawaii or Hawaii and Australia and Singapore and Hong Kong. And in reality, you just steam as fast as you can to the Persian Gulf uh, <laughs> and spend your time there. So uh, we did hit those ports, but but very small, few and far between. So, yeah. And, and did you have, like I'm going to ask this, like, did you have to work with like the British, uh, the REF or anything like that? We never did, um, mainly because of the fact that. We were West Pac more. Yeah. Yeah. So, but my buddies on the East Coast did, um, always spoke very highly uh, of them. And, and I mean, I have friends that uh, have come from there to be instructors that I've worked with later on in my career. And they were always a blast. You know, it, I think it was just, I look at it now and I'm like, well, yeah, that would have been super fun to do in the reverse, right? Like, how cool yeah, would yeah. it be to you know, go to the UK and fly in a plane that I wouldn't get to fly or something yeah. like that? Or I had a buddy go to Australia as a Marine and fly an exchange tour with them. Oh, and I was nice. like, oh, my God. You know, I mean, yeah. you know, I talk about the Wild West. And he was like, yep, it was crazy. So, <laughs> uh, so of course, it's fun, you know, to, to do those things. And, um, you know, and I have the highest level of respect for all those pilots because I know they're they're all in the same boat. You know, they're all working hard with limited resources and just trying to do good for their country. So I respect Absolutely. that. Absolutely. But Wombat, you probably have many stories, but can you maybe share one or two from your time on the E2 for our viewers? So the, the one that I'll tell you, and I won't share it, but everybody could go read it, is the prologue. So so Treason Flight is is the book I wrote, and it is a fiction book, but the prologue to that is a true story. So I put that out there. Um, the one that I think I'm the most proud of was, um, it wasn't a combat related story, but we we're flying the E2. I was actually writing the schedule and um, we got word, we were working in the Western Pacific, um, pretty far away from, from Guam. And uh, we were blue water operations, meaning we don't have a divert field to go to. Um, which as an E2 guy is, is nerve wracking. Um, you know, Hornet guys, you can mid flight refuel and all that, but we obviously can't. So 
Um, and we're all doing blue water ops. And there was another ship, I believe it was the Stennis, was also kind of in the vicinity. Well, we got word on our ship that two of their F-18s had a mid-air collision uh, doing a training flight. And the problem is their E-2 squadron had one plane or two planes hard broken. One, they didn't have a crew for a third. And the fourth one was airborne but low on gas. So they asked yeah. us if we could launch on an alert, which we didn't really stand alerts in the E-2 because of how long it took to get everything running. Um, and literally myself and a couple friends grabbed our flight gear and ran up to the plane and launched off. And it was like 12 minutes off the end of the ship. Um, and we stayed airborne for the longest. I'd have to look at my logbook for the exact time, but it was well over six hours. Um, I think when it was all said and done, we, the guys in the back coordinated like 20 some odd mid flight tankers, um, from two aircraft carriers, because what had happened is these planes had hit each other. They stayed airborne. They were still flying. Uh, one guy diverted immediately to Guam. He's like, there's no chance. So he just started flying to Guam. Mm -hmm. uh, and we were launching tankers like crazy to catch him and give him fuel the whole way. The other guy tried to come back to the to the other carrier and then had um, a hook slap and knocked the hook off of his plane. So then he had to divert. Um, and I landed. I mean, we had low fuel lights on in the Hawkeye for a significant. I mean, we were still doing mission stuff and both low fuel lights were on. Um and we landed on vapors, basically. But both of the Hornet pilots and all the tankers got back aboard. Everybody was safe. So uh, to me, that was kind of the ultimate from a pilot standpoint of what I could do is I could stretch that plane and just sip fuel out of it for as long as I could so the guys and girls in the back could do their job. Um, you know, that to me speaks to kind of the epitome of what being a Hawkeye pilot, you know, was. So Absolutely. It was all going on that day, wasn't it? It was, and of course it's nighttime because nothing ever but happens during the day. There's no, so I mean, on top of all that, you're coming in for, uh, for one, I, I literally had enough fuel to look at the back of the ship once. And if wow. I didn't trap on oh that, they told us, our CAG told us basically fly up when and bail out because we're not, I don't have enough gas to come back around. So. Crikey. Yeah. There you go, folks. What a story. <laughs> um, <laughs> but Wombat, how many hours did you get on the Hawkeye? So my logbook says officially 1,000.0. That was my goal. Is so you got a 1,000-hour uh, patch. I got my 1,000-hour patch. Um, it's the only plane that I actually know specifically how many hours I have because it's not something I track. But um, I remember when we launched off on my last flight, my best friend was in the right seat. We were, gonna, we were in uh, Point Magoo, California. We were just going to go have a good time, you know, fly around the Catalina Islands and do some sightseeing. And, and I told him, I was like, if we get airborne, I've got a log of whatever, you know, a 1.2 period, because I just want to hit it right, right yeah. on the dot. And we did it and we touched down right on the dot. And that was my thousand hours. So, nice. um, and then I left and moved on to other things.